Masechet Ketubot, Daf Samech Gimel. We are continuing with the series of stories about marriage versus Torah. On the one hand, uh, there's an obligation for a man to have onah uh, with his wife, and he has to respect her and take care of her. On the other hand, there's also an obligation to learn Torah, and having long, uninterrupted uh, periods of studying Torah for years at a time is essential to acquiring Torah. So how do you, how does one juggle these two fundamental obligations the rabbis do not believe in remaining unmarried, just being like a monk. Uh, one must be married, but then one also has to leave. So how do you do that? So we um, uh, saw a fun, uh, laws about this, uh, which is either uh, sages, if when he's home, he's expected to be with his wife every end of Shabbat. If he's away, then he can go away without permission, either 30 days, according to the Be'eliezer, or two or three years, according to Chachamim. Um, that's without permission. With permission, if they negotiated it at the time of the marriage, or if she agreed uh, in the middle of the marriage, then he can go away for even longer. Uh, nevertheless, even if it's permitted, uh, still there are consequences, and one must take into account uh, the feelings of, uh, of the woman and the exact circumstances. And for that reason, we have not only laws, uh, but also stories, and the stories are kind of fill in, uh, flesh out the skeleton, which is the simply the laws. So with the combination of the laws and stories, we have a full picture of what are the basic um, uh, requirements, but how do you live it? In, uh, in reality, so that we learned from the story. So we saw the first two stories are about people, sages, who came back relatively often, um, but did not keep their promise. They were expected to come every uh, so often, but their learning pulled them, seduced them away from their wives, and so they ended up dying. So those are the two pairs of negative stories. The middle two stories that we finished with is where uh, they go uh, with permission and uh, and they come back, um, but when they come back, they find that either his wife is barren or his wife is surprised and dies. Uh, now, these poor women, what did they do wrong? Nothing. They don't deserve this fate. So in this case, uh, because their um, uh, the rabbis were care, did care about them and did keep their promise, even though it was for a long time, so they were able to pray for them and they came back to life or they got better. Uh, so this is a positive uh, outcome, but still not necessarily a good example because we're not going to rely on miracles. Uh, the last one we saw was uh, story number five, where Rabbi Chama Barbi says, I'm not going to do the same mistake and surprise my wife. Um, and so he comes, he sees, he meets his son in the Bet Midrash, and he says, oh, I wish I had a son like this. And sure enough, it was his son. So you see how careful he is in not surprising his wife and taking, taking into account her feelings. He goes with permission and all that. And so this is a very positive story that the outcome was, was good. Uh, even though he did have to go away for so long, if it's done properly with great care, then the outcome can be good. So story number six also is going to be a story of someone who goes away even longer, but the outcome is good. So let's see this famous story of Rabbi Akiva, the Ayat ben Kalba Sabuahava. He, Rabbi Akiva, was the shepherd of Ben Kalba Sabua, who was a very wealthy man in Jerusalem. They say he was named this because anyone who went to his house hungry as a dog would come out uh, uh, satiated. 
More likely, his name comes from Kaleb. He's a descendant of Kaleb. Uh, so we get Kalba. Okay. Ben Kalba Sabua's daughter saw Rabbi Akiba hanging around, being a shepherd for his father, and she saw he had very fine qualities. He was humble and upright. Uh, even though he was a simpleton, he's just a simple shepherd. So she says, if I will marry you, will you promise to go and study in the Bet Midrash? He agreed to the terms. So they eloped, they did Kiddushin in private, and she sent him off. So the father heard about this. He was very upset. This is his, you know, his daughter, his princess. He was planning on marrying her off to a wealthy family, a learned, a learned man, you know, something, uh, something powerful. Instead, she married the poor, unlearned shepherd. So he was very upset. And he kicked her out of the house, and he took a vow prohibiting her from his property. She would have to live. Uh, now she had no husband. Her husband is away, so he's not taking care of her. Her father is not taking care of her, so she is going to have to live in poverty. She went also for 12 years. This seems to be the standard curriculum, or just a number that means a very long time. And when he came back after 12 years, he had with him 12,000 students. So he very successful. So as Rebekah is approaching, he's about to knock on the door, but he hears, he overhears from in the door, an old man saying to his wife, how long are you going to live like a living widow? Uh, you know, you are, your husband is alive, but you're living like a widow. Widows also, they didn't have anyone to support them, and they would live in, in abject poverty. And so this old man is saying, you know, you're, what, what kind of situation is this? You've got to get yourself out of it. And she says, I'm gonna, she, she didn't complain, as I know it was so terrible. Instead, she says, She said, if we're up to me, he would go and study another 12 years. He's totally willing to self-sacrifice and be alone and be impoverished if it will mean for the sake of his learning and teaching Torah. So he over to Biakiba overhears that. Imagine he has these 24, these 12,000 students with him and he hears that. So um, he says, Oh, look, I have permission to go for another 12 years. Right? This picks up on the theme earlier of without permission, with permission, with permission, right? You can go as long as you want. So she's not only, no one coerced her, she, without anybody there, without Abiy Akiba there, she uh, volunteered and said, I wish she would go another 12 years. So he turned right around and went back. And learned another 12 years in the study house. Be'erav does not mean the house of Rav, the Amora, uh, because Abiy Akiba lived before him. But Be'erav is a phrase that means the Bet Midrash, the, um, the place where the rabbi teaches, whoever that is. Um, okay, good. Everybody asks this question. Why? He was already there. Why at least go knock on the door, say hello, spend uh, you know a couple of hours with his wife. Uh, would that take away so much? And uh, 
uh, in the 24-year span? Uh, the answer probably is that any interruption is uh, going to be a distraction, right? You can't compare uh, sitting for a, for a straight a long time uh, than uh, being interrupted in the middle. So he goes back. Comes back with 24,000 students uh, um, corresponding to the 24 years that he was away. So now the wife heard that he's coming home. She goes out to greet him. So the neighbors say, why don't you go? It's in, like the first time he came back, the, this old man is there. Now the neighbors are telling her advice, but they're always saying bad advice. So they say, oh, why don't you go borrow some clothes and get dressed nicely. You know, you're wearing all rags from being impoverished. And so don't you want to look nice for your husband? She's, no, I don't have to. Because the righteous person knows uh, the life of his beast. Uh, comparing herself, like even a lowly beast, he would know the value. And so I don't have to dress up. He knows who I am and he will appreciate me no matter how I dress. When she came to him, she falls on her face. She, the wife, is kissing the feet of Rabbi Akiba out of, uh, out of deference, respect. So his attendants, yeah, the uh, students, his bodyguards, they're pushing away. Some crazy lady is coming and kick, kissing his feet, right? So they're trying to push her. They're trying to push her away. And the famous line, Rebecca Yibah says, Leave her, all of my Torah, and all of your Torah, speaking to his 24,000 students, is all belongs to her. She is the reason why uh, this happened. She's the one that pushed me to go study in the first place and allowed me and, and uh, encouraged me to stay. So she gets the credit for all of our Torah. Now the father heard that a great man came to the city. He didn't know it was his son-in-law. He just thought it was a great rabbi. In the meantime, the father saw uh, this whole time that his daughter is living in poverty and he felt bad about it. He wanted to undo his vow. But this is a difficult thing to do. Not just any rabbi can undo a vow. You have to, you know, really know the laws and be able to figure out how to undo it. And so, So he came to ask him and Rebekah said, Did you vow having in mind that the person that your daughter married would become a great man. Uh, one of the ways to undo a vow is if you can find a situation where if you, that you didn't have, have in mind, when I made the vow, I didn't realize that this would, this, this would be the consequence. So if you had known that your son-in-law would be a great man, would you have still made a vow? Ben says, it doesn't have to even be the Gadol Hador, even if he studied one chapter. Or even one halacha, he knows one mishnah, that would have been enough for me that he would have been, I would have considered him already not an ignoramus and uh, I would not have made the vow against my daughter. reveals himself, says, actually, I am your son-in-law. So this has a parallel to the previous story where the father did not recognize the son. The father who was the rabbi who didn't recognize his son. Here is the father-in-law who doesn't recognize his son. 
Although there's a switch in the previous story, the father was the one that was away. Here, the son is the son-in-law is the one who went away. Nafal al al Now Ben he falls on his face and kisses his, uh, kisses the feet of Rabbi Akiba. Palgama and he gives them half of his money uh, so they could live now uh, respectfully. And now we continue and say the daughter, their daughter that they had from this marriage of Rabbi Akiba. Um, did the same for Ben Azai. In other words, Ben Azai also was not married, and uh, Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Akiva's daughter went to Ben Azai and says, "Hey, if I marry you, will you go and learn Torah?" And he, she allowed him to go away, and that's how he became a great, uh, a great Tanah in and of himself. Now, this is interesting because elsewhere it says that Ben Azai. Uh, uh, says that he never got married because he loves Torah too much. He can't, uh, he can't distract himself from Torah. Was not married at all, according to this source. He was married, uh, so maybe he wasn't married. And he got this. Maybe the story is later. It's not easy to figure out this contradiction. Tosafot asks it and suggests maybe he did get married, but there was never together with her. Or they only did kiddushin, but never consummated with nisuin. So that's why he says yes, he got married. Did kiddushin here, but the other source says they never actually lived together. All right, so anyway, um, so this is what people say that uh, a lamb follows a lamb, lambs they all follow each once one goes, the other one goes, like mother, like daughter. So, just like Rabbi Akiva's wife did this, and there may be a play on words because while she's not named here in other parallel sources, she is named Rachel. So it could be that, uh, you know, the daughter follows Rachel. In any case, um, uh, the once the, you see the mother does it, she was a, a model for her own daughter. So this also has a parallel to the f- fifth story where it says the threefold cord will not be undone. And so you have three generations of uh, learned sages. And here this story also ends with a mother following, with a daughter following the mother's uh, example. Okay, so you have here two very positive stories where they had, um, the husbands were very sensitive and the wives were encouraging. And uh, that's why it ended in a, a positive outcome. Unlike the ones before. Okay, now, final story. Rav Yosef bered Rava. Shedare avuhi leberav lekamed Rav Yosef. So Rav Yosef, the son of Rava, uh, was sent by his father to study with Rav Yosef. This is the two different Rav Yosef. This one of Yosef is the teacher, and one is the student here. Um, Pasku, uh, uh, Rav Yosef is probably a third generation, and Rava is a fourth generation. So Rav Yosef is uh, a generation after, so he's studying with his with uh, someone who will be old enough to be his teacher's, his father's teacher. Okay, anyway, Pasku la shit shene, and they agree that he's going to go study for six years. Agreed with whom? Well, I have to be with his wife. Uh, that the wife will allow him to go, but it sounds like also with the father, right? The father's in the, like in the previous stories, the father wants them to go away for a long time. The son may not want to go away for so long. So anyway, they agreed on a compromise of six years. After three years, Rav Yosef, the son, saw, um, it was Erev Yom Kippur, and he says, let me go see my, the people of my household. I want to go visit my wife. Uh, they're not studying Torah that day. So anyway, so um, 
that maybe yeshiva has closed. And uh, so he says, let me go see my, my, uh, my family. Shema Abuhi, the father heard that the, the, the son was uh, planning to come home. Shekal mana un So he took an instrument, a weapon of war, a weapon, and he went to well, greet or push back his son. He's not allowed to come back. You agreed you're going to stay away for six years. You can't come back, not even for a day. So the father said, you remembered your mistress or right, your prostitute calling the wife, which is a, uh, you know, quite a, a very strong language here. But the point is that you agreed to be married, to be devoted to Torah for six years. And so by interrupting this, your wife now is your uh, is a mistress. So, um, you know, what are you doing? You're cheating on cheating on Torah. Uh, another nicer version says, you remembered your dove, uh, maybe saying it sarcastically, oh, you're such love, you, you left, you, you broke your promise, and you left Torah to do this, so the father is against it. And so they became preoccupied, each one, they're arguing with each other, and uh, they were to stay there until the sun set, and neither the teacher nor his, neither the father nor the son were able to do eat suda mafseket. They were not able to prepare for Yom Kippur. Or another play on words, lo ifsik, they did not stop fighting. Okay, so that's the end. That's the end of the seven stories. Uh, so it ends on such a dramatic scene. I think the point of this is that this is an everlasting question. Marriage versus Torah. There is no one answer. And you have both sides of it that are going to uh, uh, be in tension because there are there is there are both both valuable. Torah is valuable and family. Uh, and uh, obligation to one's wife is valuable, and therefore, in every situation, these tensions are going to exist for a long, long time. And so, just like the father and son here continue to fight right through Yom Kippur, so too uh, we still have to um, uh, uh, debate this very uh, this very uh, issue. Uh, interestingly, the the Yom Kippur coming home to see one's wife on Yom Kippur is what the stories end on, and that's also what was in the first story that he came every every Yom Kippur. So there's an envelope structure here from beginning to end. Um, also, the word zona. You remembered your zona. Uh, zona also appears in a previous story um, uh, where he says, you know, what would people say if he marries a second uh, wife? This is his his wife, and this is his zona. So there are a lot of themes that run throughout. Also, the word nefesh picks up on the opening that says the rabbis did this themselves or did it with their lives, and so um, we have uh, that is picked up as well. All right, so this is a, a very beautiful and deep series of uh, stories, and there's a lot written on it. If anybody's interested, I can send you a bunch of articles about it. All right, well, we begin with the next Mishnah. Hamoredet al ba'ala, pohatin la miketubata, shiv'a dinarin be'shabbat, a woman who rebels against her husband. We're going to see, does that mean she, she refuses marital relations, or she refuses to, to do the uh, chores of the house that she is responsible to, responsible for? That will be a machloket. Anyway, we reduce her ketubah, um, seven dinarin per week. In other words, one dinar every day that she refuses. 
refuses until she realizes her kitubah is going to become less and less and she gets back on the right path. Rabbi Yehuda Omer Shiva Terapaki'in. Rabbi says, no, not 70 narim, but rather 10 of this Roman coin, which was a half of a dinar. So Rabbi says it's half of that amount. And how far down do you go? Till the entire ketubah amount is wiped out. That would be the 100 or 200 plus the added amount plus her dowry, right? Whatever she would be getting. It may not, it probably does not include uh, fields that she remains, would remain in control of that she would get back, but uh, it includes the entire payout. So until there's zero left in the balance, so then she loses out her entire ketubah. And Rabbi says even more stringent against her and says you can even have a negative balance. Well, well, she's already not getting anything, so how is she going to pay it back? Well, if one day she inherits something, she will be in debt to her husband. So if she continues to be rebellious, then the debt will continue and go into negative territory and she'll have to pay from any future inheritance. Not only the man, not only the woman, also the man. If a man rebels against his wife and he doesn't fulfill his basic obligations, then we add to the payment that he will have to pay the ketubah three dinarim every week. And he says, three of this Roman coin, that's half of the say, uh, half of that amount. Okay, how come when a woman rebels, she's fined seven coins, whereas when the man rebels, he's fined only three coins, is a good question. One possible answer is that um, she is responsible to do seven chores in the, around the house, remember? Uh, whereas he is responsible for three obligations of She'er, Kesut, and, and Ona. Or okay, maybe. Uh, the Bible is going to say that, going to focus on the refusal of marital relations and say that when she refuses, that harms him more than when his refusal harms her. He is going to be more distressed about it, and so that outcome for that is worse. All right, now we ask, when someone says rebel, rebellious woman, what is she not doing? What is she refusing? From marital relations. She says, they get angry, they get into a fight. She says, I'm stop, I'm not going to have relations with you. So then uh, the, those consequences begin. No, not from that, but rather from work, doing the obligated work around the house. Uh, uh, you know, uh, 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 making the bed, spinning the wool, things like that. Tenan. I'm going to have a couple of questions about these two opinions. So, at our very Mishnah it gives a reciprocal, right? The man can also be a, a rebellious. So, we're assuming that the man is the, the definition of rebellious has to apply to both the woman and the man. There's a re- reciprocal definition. So, if I understand, and the one who said, according to Rav Huna, who says it means that she refuses marital relations, so then the Sefaz, when he refuses marital relations, so then that makes sense. But according to the one who says, Melacha, does he, is he required to do any uh, work 
uh, around the house, those are her obligations. Uh, he has to go out to work, but he doesn't do chores around the house. That's not part of the Ketubah obligation. So he's in Beomed and Izan Venimefanes. Yes, in fact, there is. When he comes and says, I am not feeding you, I am not providing support to you, he says that to his wife. And because those are equivalent, he's obligated to give her support in exchange for her doing the uh, the chores and, and taking care of the home. Since those are equivalent, if she says, I'm not going to work, uh, is equivalent of him saying, Basically, I'm not going to work. I'm not getting, I'm not providing a salary and I'm not providing for you. Uh, so those are in fact equivalent. So it does make sense. We can understand the reciprocality according to the Biyoseh, the Biyoseh, the Biyoseh, the Biyoseh, says it's talking work. Okay. Ve'ha'marav ha'omed enizan ve'eni mefarnes yosi v'yiten ketubah. Hold on. But Rav said, and someone who says that I am not um, going to feed or or f- provide for you, he has to divorce her and pay a ketubah. If the man is not fulfilling his obligation of, of feeding his wife, he has to divorce her and give a ketubah. So this is uh, goes against our Mishnah. Our Mishnah says, uh, according to this opinion, this this interpretation of Melacha, if he refuses to feed her, then we reduce, we increase the amount of ketubah he's going to have to pay every week. Um, but here it says he would have to he would have to give a, just pay give a divorce right away and pay a full ketubah. So which one is it? Okay, the answer is Okay, doesn't the man need to be consulted? Mean, meaning need to be uh, you have to have a meeting with him and convince him. So in the meantime, while we're waiting for that, that's not like he's going to give a ketubah the next day necessarily. And so, in the meantime, we will increase the ketubah by the three dinarim, or whatever coin it is, three coins, each week. And that way, it'll take some time, and uh, by increasing, that is adding more and more of a fine that he will have to pay, and eventually, that will pressure him to divorce and give a ketubah. So, it's not inconsistent with Rav, it's just rather talking about two um, stages in the pressure uh, until he does uh, give uh, the get. Okay, Metibe, now we're going to ask, uh, uh, cha- uh, uh, have a challenge to these opinions. That's the end of a Braita. We're about to, we're going to see the full Braita in a second. But they're saying that this law uh, regarding the rebellious uh, wife uh, applies not only to a regular case of someone married, but even someone who's an Arusa, and she says, I refuse to get married. Um, so she's called rebellious, and then Nisua, she's already married, and she refuses, well, we'll see, what it, uh, refuses something. We have to figure out which one we're asking about. Even if she is Nida, even if she is sick, and even if she is, uh, her husband died, and she's waiting for her Yavam to do Yibum or Chalitza. So we say about this. According to um, Rabbi Yosef, Rabbi Hanina, who said that the rebellious wife is one who refuses to do the work, do the chores that she is obligated to do, then uh, this makes sense. This would be an arusa. Because she's refusing to get married, when she gets married, she'll start having to do those chores. But she's refusing to get married, so she's refusing to do those chores. So if she's married and doesn't, and doesn't want to do them, or... 
if uh, she's Nida and doesn't want to do them, uh, so Nida can do work. A whole lot we're going to ask about in a in a minute. Um, or Shemir Javam, she is refusing to do Yibum and get be married. And in that way, she is getting out of doing those chores. So they all make sense according, except Chola, which we're going to get back to. They all make sense if we're going to get to, if we're talking about doing work. But if she's refusing, she's rebelling and says, I won't um, have marital relations. Well, then what's Nida doing in here? Nida is prohibited anyway. So she's not rebelling. By Her rebelliousness is not changing anything in her action. So the answer is, uh, like we said earlier, a person who has bread in his basket is not the same as someone who doesn't, even if two people are fasting. But one has bread and knows that whenever the fast is over, he will be able to eat. Is not the same as someone who doesn't have even the possibility. So too, even if a man's wife is nida, and so they're not having relations, but if she then further says, I refuse, that means that even when she's, uh, then it's impossible, even when she's done with nida, there's not even a theoretical possibility of being with her. So that is much more upsetting and problematic than uh, um, if she's just nida, okay, but nida will be over, and then he'll be have his, have his bread in his basket, so to speak. Okay, this entire paragraph from Bishlamat Tamisha and Law, actually uh, including the words Ika de Amre, are in parentheses in the printed edition. Um, and now, what seems to ha- seems to have happened is that you see that this starts with Bishlama, and this here is Bishlama. Uh, so, if we look in the manuscripts. Uh, we'll find that most manuscripts do have it, including the Geniza, the Cairo Geniza fragment, right? It has these, these uh, even though it's fragmentary, we can see it had that paragraph and has Ika de Amre. So that is the oldest and best uh, uh, manuscript. So for sure, these words are original. Um, however, a, th- a couple of Ashkenazi manuscripts don't have those words. This one here, see, it's going straight from Shemet Yavam to Bishlama. Uh, and this one also here, Vatican. Uh, these other two manuscripts do have this paragraph. Um, one is Ashkenazi and one is Byzantine. So it does seem like these, this whole pa- this paragraph, it b- does belong there. Uh, but because it's not in two manuscripts, and um, with this this same line. Where the same back and forth we're going to see come up again in a few minutes. And so the Marashal suggests that it be taken out of the printed edition. Um, but I think more likely this was left out by mistake of, from these manuscripts because the scribe's eye skipped from the Bishlama in the first paragraph to the Bishlama in the second paragraph and therefore skipped the paragraph. But it probably does, in fact, belong there. Um, okay, so Ika de Amre, another second version of this challenge is the other way around. Bishlama lemandama mitashmish hainu dekatani hole, if you say that the refusal of the wife is from marital relations, then it makes sense to include a sick person in this. A sick person, she may be weak and can't do work, but she's lying in bed, so she can be with her husband. 
Ela lamanda mami melacha, hola, bat melachahi. But if you're talking about so, that she rebels and is not doing chores, if she's weak and stuck and, and bedridden, and how she would be, be impossible for her to, to, to do chores. So what are you talking about? She's rebelling against doing chores if she's sick anyway and can't do them. Ela, so this is a good question, and we have to admit that. Everyone will admit that Tashmish is one criteria of If a woman uh, refuses um, marital relations, that, uh, according to all definitions, is considered a rebellious wife, but if she only refuses the chores, is that considered rebellious or not? Ravuna said, no, only if it's uh, from relations and not melacha. That doesn't, it's, it's not, she's not supposed to do that and they'll have to deal with it somehow, but it doesn't rise to the level of a rebellious wife that they would take away from her ketubah. Um, and uh, uh, so, uh, whereas it be Yose, the son of Bichanina thinks that both of them, either she refuses to, uh, uh, marital relations or she refuses the chores in the house, both of those are considered rebellious. All right, now that we quoted part of the Baraita, here's the entirety. So this is the uh, same as from the Mishnah, that she rebels, and we take uh, we reduce her ketubah by seven coins. Um, uh, so uh, the, the rabbis then changed the, their decree and said they, uh, they voted and they decided that instead of reducing her ketubah little by little, little by little over a long period of time, we're going to give her four weeks and we're going to warn her. And then at the end of four weeks, she's going to lose the entire ketubah altogether and she will be divorced. Um, they th- I guess they figured that was more effective. These cases were being dragged out too long. And so they all sent an announcement on four consecutive Shabbatot. And they also would send a messenger from the Betin to tell her, listen, you better be aware that your, uh, even if your ketubah is worth 10,000 dinar, you are going to lose it at the end of these four weeks altogether. So you better, uh, you, you know, you better reconcile and stop being rebellious. Um, and this is this law applies now. This is the part we quoted before. We can apply this law of rebellious elder whether she is only has kiddushin and refuses to marry, or she's married and refuses um, uh, uh, her her duties, uh, or even if she's nida or sick, or even if she's waiting to do yibum and isn't doing yibum, she's also neglecting her duties to the yavam. Uh, by not doing Yibum. So now, under the assumption that the rebellious elder is refusing mal- marital relations, Bichaya asks Shemuel, uh, what, is, what is Nida doing on this list? Does uh, can Nida have marital relations? She can't have marital relations anyway. So uh, what's uh, so she's not really rebelling. She's not doing anything differently. So he responded 
No, someone who has his bread is not is not the same as someone who doesn't have bread in his basket. Psychologically, even if you're fasting, the possibility of having bread makes one calmer, whereas no possibility of bread is going to make one anxious and feel even hungrier. And same thing here. Okay, so this is the answer that we already saw before. Um, so this uh, could also be why Maharshal suggests taking it out earlier because it's already here. But if we do follow the uh, Cairo Geniza uh, fragment, and where, which does have it earlier and here, then we can actually learn something else that's very interesting. Here, it's among two named Amoraim. Erichia Bar Yosef asks Shemuel the question, and Shemuel answers the question. But since it is relevant to the discussion up here also, the machloket between Rav Huna and Rabbi Yoseh about what is, uh, what is the rebelliousness about. So we quote the Braita and we ask on one side and we ask on the other side. So it's quoted here also, even though here the question and the answer are anonymous. So what probably happened is that the second part of the suga is the earlier part, is the Amoraic part. But then uh, since it's uh, quoted, this, but, uh, this piece of the Baita is quoted out of context for uh, earlier when we have those later Amoraim discussing this. So then this is also, the question and answer is also cited anonymously. All right, next. When we make announcements about her, and the point is to publicly shame her, that, hey, this woman, she is not being a good wife, we do so only in the synagogues and study halls, not out in the streets. And this uh, makes sense in the language of the B'dayta, because it says, for Shabbatot, which we're taking to mean not for weeks, but for Saturdays. And uh, so on Saturday, where, where is everybody on Saturday? They're in the Batekinesiot and the Batem Midrashot. They're not out in the streets. Uh, so that uh, makes sense. We, we learned from here, by the way, that even back then, most people went to Shul on Shabbat and not so much during the week. And we send her messengers from the court twice, once before the announcement start. Listen, the announcements are going to start. You better uh, uh, stop being rebellious now before they start. And then, the, then if she doesn't listen, we make these four weeks of announcements. And then again at the end to say, listen, we made the announcements. And now you still didn't, you know, last chance before you lose your entire ketuba. Darash Rav Nachman Bar Avchista Halacha Kerabotenu Halacha follows the sages who say that we do this system of four weeks of public shaming and then she loses her entire ketuba at once. Amarava Hai Burcha but Rava says this is absurd, uh, maybe from the language of bur, uh, 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 this is an empty statement. No, halacha is not like the sages. Rava thinks that the halacha follows the Mishnah that says you, she, she, she is deducted from slowly over time. So how come you said that this is absurd? What's wrong with it? So this Rav Nachman continuing to talk. says, what's, what's no, nothing absurd about this halacha that we follow the rabbis. I said this very halacha in front of a great man, and he accepted it. A lot of times a student would say something in front of the teacher to see the teacher's reaction. And who was that? It was a B.O.S.E.D. 
son of Rabbi Hanina. And so that was a great man. And so he accepted this as the halacha. So Rava, why are you rejecting what Rav Nachman here said? Okay, so so he maintains that position. Who was he following? He must have relied on something to say that this is a nonsense position. Oh, so Rava quotes Rav Sheshat who said the lacha is that we consult with her. In other words, we continue consulting with her. Please retract, and then we deduce every week from her marriage contract. So, in other words, Allah is like the Mishnah. Now, that is only one version of what Rav Sheshat said. He pointed out Rav Huna's version, is that we do not consult with her, but rather we just go and announce, and immediately she loses, after four weeks, she loses her ketubah completely. But Rav's version of Rav Sheshat is, in fact, that the halacha is like the Mishnah. That's why he said that. Okay, what are you talking about? What's the what is exactly does she say when she's rebellious? When she says, I want to remain married with him. She doesn't want a divorce, but she wants to torture his life because they're in a fight. Whatever he did something, she did something. And so now she is refusing marital relations. Um not because she wants divorce, she was she just she's very upset. But if she says, he is disgusting to me, I can't stand him, I don't want to be married to him at all. In that case, we do not for compel her to remain with him. With him. She's disgusting to her, she can't stand him. So then she has a right to divorce. She won't get the ketubah um, because she's the one that is out, is, is asking to be out. Um, but we're not going to pressure her to stay in and and uh, and uh, not be not be rebellious. That is Amemar. Uh, Mozutra, on the other hand, says, "No, we for we compel her to to stay with him, and we're just going to keep deducting from her ketubah until uh, or or public shame publicly shame her until she agrees." Um, because I guess you know maybe she'll change her mind and they'll make up, and so we don't we don't want we want to put more pressure to maybe save the marriage. And sure enough, Morzutra, who said that you you pressure her one time, he he did that to a couple, even though she said he's disgusting to me, and they forced him to stay together, and they had a child, and that child was Rabbi Hanina from Surah, who was a great sage. So you see, sometimes it works out if um, you put some pressure on them to on her to stay. But the Gemara in the end says, Velohi hatam dishmayava. In that particular case, there was heavenly assistant, assistance because this had to happen and Rabbi Hanina would come from it. So this was a miracle, but this was an exception to the rule. And uh, uh, otherwise, in other cases, one should not force the wife to be with him. If she says, he's disgusting to me, I want out, then the Betin should give her a get, force him to give her, uh, give her a get, and let her out of the marriage. And that is a very important conclusion that um, not all Batedin today have uh, have read, so they should uh, they should read this conclusion. Okay, Kelate de Rav Zevid im Reda. 
a story about the daughter-in-law of Rav Zavid. That's important that it was him. And she rebelled against her husband. So this is his son is now has a problem because his, his son's uh, a wife is, says, I want out. Uh, or she's, well, she's saying, I'm not going to have relations with them. So she was holding a garment, a, you know, a fine garment with her, meaning this is something that she brought into the marriage and she wants to, she wants out and she wants to take it with her. So that's the question that was presented before these three rabbis. There's a fourth rabbi also sitting with them. And so they have to decide, you know, she, she was, she's going to, she's going to get a divorce. Does she get to keep this scarf that she brought into the marriage? Or does she lose her ketubah altogether and including what her dowry? So they sat and they decided since she rebelled, and she gets, she doesn't get her ketubah. And not only does she lose the basic amount of the ketubah, she even loses out the cloths that she brought in that are still around. She loses them, so they took away the cloth from her. Amalehu Ravgamda. So that's what the three rabbis decided. Ravgamda, who was a guest, was sitting with them, uh, looked at them and said, What, because Ravzavid is a great man, you're flattering him? In other words, you're deciding halacha for the benefit of Ravzavid. Because if she doesn't keep the scarf, then her husband keeps keeps the scarf. That's Rav Zavid's son. And so what? Well, because you're uh, you're 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 um, uh, flattering Rav Zavid, and that's why you decided for his on his behalf. This is not proper to do that because this this question was asked by Rava does she get to keep the worn out clothes the old clothes or not and he didn't give an answer so you're not you don't have a clear cut halakha to rely on that you decided this must be you're showing favoritism okay very strong attack against the, against the rabbis all that is one version of the story another version uh, they, the three rabbis who were sitting there, decided the opposite. According to in this version, that because even though she rebelled, she will lose her kitubah, but the old clothes that she had brought in to the marriage that are still around, those she can keep. So they let her keep it. And uh, in this version, Rav Gamda is still not happy. Amalehu Rav Gamda. Because Rav Zavid is a great sage and everybody knows that he's humble, he's not going to challenge you. So now you twisted the judgment against him, right? You shouldn't be against him either because you want to show how, you know, that how fair you are and how you're not a flatterer. That's the opposite. Uh, extreme. After all, Rav Kana said that Rav had this question and he didn't answer it. So since he didn't answer it, how are you so sure that you could take it away? You seem to be, you know, showing uh, that you are, you know, going against the possibility of anyone calling you a flatterer, but you're doing it unfairly against Rav Zavid and taking advantage of his humility. Since Rav and uh, didn't, didn't say this way or that way, and so there's no, no, there's no absolute ruling on this. Then we should just leave the 
property where it is. If she already grabbed it, then we don't take it from her. So in this case, she had that particular scarf in her hand, so you should let her keep it. Whereas others, other clothing that she didn't yet seize, we do not give it to her. We leave everything as the status quo. So no matter what they decided, they were going to have criticism. Okay, yet another halacha regarding a rebellious woman that we will delay giving the get for 12 months just in case maybe they will, they, maybe they will make up um, so, and during those 12 months, she does not receive sustenance from her husband. She is not giving, uh, she's not doing her responsibilities, so he doesn't have to do his responsibilities. So basically, they're separated. So before we uh, trigger the, the get and force uh, him to, to give a get to her, uh, we wait 12 months to see if everything is settled, if every, and, uh, and perhaps, uh, perhaps they'll change their minds. Maybe she will get better. Uh, she will change her mind. Maybe they will reconcile. And if not, after 12 months uh, go by, then he will give the get.